Good morning. Um, we, uh, we only have two or three more weeks uh, to continue to study that which we've been studying for the last few months. Uh, we have been looking at how to understand our emotions in a biblical way and to engage them in the way that God would want us to. And, um, and it's been wonderful for me just to, to, to spend time studying this and sharing it with you. And a lot of you have talked about how, how much it's meant to you. We're, we're going to close it out over the next two or three weeks by tackling what may be the most difficult part of all of this series, even though it might not seem like that, because we're going to start talking about some positive emotions. Um, when we think about dealing with our emotions and the challenge of dealing with our, our emotions, our feelings, usually we think about how to deal with the negative ones, you know, like fear and anger and guilt and grief and things like that. And to be honest, most of what is written on this topic tends in the same direction toward the negative emotions. And that's largely because there aren't a lot of people out there that are battling the problem of too much joy, right? Most psychologists do not spend a lot of time talking to clients about how to deal with all the excess happiness that they're struggling with, right? But, but how, how do we think in a Christian way about our positive emotions? Um, we have a, a coffee mug in our house that speaks to this issue. I think Don got it as a gift from a friend. And the mug says this, chocolate is proof that God wants us to be happy. Amen. So... Um, Put that one through your theological grid and see what comes out, okay? Chocolate is proof that God wants us to be happy. Well, most of us have no argument with chocolate um, other than what it does to our waistlines, but is it, is it true, is it true that God wants us to be happy? Yes. Is it wrong for Christians to pursue happiness, to do things that make us happy? Is it wrong for us to pursue our own self-interest, if you will? Or is that just selfishness and worldliness? Well, according to the Bible, God not only wants us to be happy, he commands us to be happy. You can turn to Philippians 4.4 if you like. That's going to be our verse for today. It's a very short verse. Many of you will not have to turn to Philippians 4.4 because it is a verse that you memorized when you were like six years old. You didn't know the reference maybe, but you memorized it in song form. In fact, you may go home today with this little ditty stuck in your head. It goes like this, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice, rejoice. Yes, you know the song, some of you. Call me crazy, okay? But I wonder if sometimes we have more trouble obeying this single, simple little command than we have learning to deal constructively with all of our negative emotions put together. And make no mistake, it's a command. It's a command. In fact, it's a repeated command. First of all, because it shows up in Philippians 3, verse 1, in this very form. So Paul's already repeating it, and now when he gets to chapter 4, verse 4, he repeats it two more times in the same verse. And notice what Paul repeats. Paul does not say, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I will say it, in the Lord, as if the problem is that we're rejoicing in the wrong thing. Now make no mistake, that is a problem. But the word Paul re repeats is rejoice, which leads me to conclude that the primary problem here is that we Christians are simply not joyful enough. Amen. Some of us are getting close. <laughs> but the problem is that we need to be more joyful. Well, how, how many of us are really rejoicing continually and consistently in the Lord? What does that even mean? What does it even look like? What does it not look like? Today's message, <clears throat> which is going to try to even maybe start exploring this idea of joy, <clears throat> is going to be more of maybe a meditation than a standard 
sermon. So it's going to frustrate some of you because it's not going to be remotely as practical as we've been the last few weeks. You've come up to me and you've said, boy, it's so, you've given me so many good practical um, steps to take when it comes to dealing with emotion. Well, this week's going to be a little bit different. What I want to do today is just kind of lead you to think on some things and maybe even give you a faint hint or a taste of something and invite you into it, but not tell you a whole lot of what to do because I don't know if I can do that here. Uh, and as I do this, just kind of this meditation, I want to refer to a couple of authors who have helped me a lot um, in my understanding of joy. One of them is John Piper. Um, Some of you know who John Piper is. He's a pastor out in uh, Minnesota. He may be retired by now. He's a fairly old guy, but Piper's not the kind of guy that would retire, so he's probably not retired. But but some of you may know that, that John Piper's most famous book is called Desiring God, Meditations of a Christian Hedonist. Now, the word hedonist means pleasure seeker, and so it's usually a word that we Christians use in a negative way, but, but the catchphrase of Piper's book is this, and this is what you'll see on the back cover. It says this, the pursuit of pleasure is not optional. It is essential. A true Christian, according to Piper, is a person who, having joyfully embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ, is now living in constant pursuit of pleasure only maybe not the way the world would define it, because the ultimate source of pleasure turns out to be God himself. And as Piper is very fond of saying, God himself gets the most glory. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And both John Piper and the other author I'll be quoting today, who happens to be C.S. Lewis, uh, point this out, that there is a brand of Christianity that many of us have encountered, that many of us maybe subscribe to at least a little bit, and that brand of Christianity teaches us that the only way we can ever please God is to make ourselves miserable in the process. That if we somehow get enjoyment out of, out of doing Christianity, then we're doing it wrong. Because to be really spiritual, we can't be doing anything that's that fun. To be really spiritual, we can't be doing anything at all out of self-interest. Now, that may sound spiritual, but it's not, and both authors reject that out of hand as a twisted version of Christianity. Our problem, brothers and sisters, is not that we are pursuing pleasure, it's that we're pursuing it in the wrong places for the wrong reasons, and as Paul's repeated command suggests, we're not pursuing it hard enough. Now, we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, so let's go back and look carefully at the verse, at the command for a minute. First of all, we already noted it's a command. Now, what is, the, what is the command word? Well, here it is, rejoice. Rejoice, all right? So this, of course, is related in English to the word joy. And in fact, in New Testament Greek, it's the same way. The word for joy is included in this verb, in this command, rejoice. So it's probably going to help us to try to define this word joy. And since joy is kind of a hard thing to define and get our, our, our minds around, maybe what we can do is at least we can compare it to some of the other words that joy is related to that we tend to use in the same way. So this thing called joy, what is it? Is it merely a state of constant pleasure? Is that what joy is? Well, we sense that it's not. Now, there's nothing wrong in the Bible with pleasure in the sense that Psalm 16 tells us there are eternal pleasures at God's right hand. But we're going to see that joy is more than pleasure. What about contentment? That's a good word, isn't it? We love contentment. We love to have contentment. In fact, Philippians, the whole book of Philippians talks a lot, especially in chapter 4 here, about contentment. Being content in our circumstances is a really good thing. But we're going to find out that joy actually goes deeper than contentment as well. And in fact, there's a little bit of discontent in joy. 
Is joy perhaps just the experience of a stress-free feeling of general well-being? We could take that, right? A stress-free life. Feeling good all the time, just having that feeling of well-being. Most of us could go for that, but if that's what joy is, then the people who use hallucinogenic drugs are probably on the right track. Because that's what they're after, right? At least at the beginning, a generic sense of painlessness and stress-free well-being. But ultimately, the high that comes from those drugs turns out to be just a cheap substitute. See, what Satan does with drugs is he tries to use drugs as a substitute for heaven. But in reality, they don't really imitate heaven. You know, they imitate more like a kind of nirvana, a state of bliss where you've separated yourself from your true identity and, and nothing really matters anymore. You just stopped caring about problems. You've stopped caring about people. You've stopped caring about life. But that's not heaven, and that's not true joy. Whatever joy is, we're going to find that it has to go deeper than that. And we know this because, at least in part, because Paul tells us to rejoice always. Always, which means not just when everything is going great, not just when we have maximum pleasure and minimum pain. We're supposed to rejoice at other times, too. This verse, Philippians 4.4, in some ways is just the capstone of the whole book of Philippians. And in this letter, Paul rejoices in a lot of different things. Let me give you some of them. He rejoices that the Philippians can share with him in his suffering and persecution. He rejoices that the gospel is being preached, even though some of the people who are preaching it have bad motives and they're even making trouble for Paul. He rejoices, he says, listen to this one, even if he is being, quote, poured out like a drink offering on the altar of your sacrifices. You know what that means? That means I rejoice even if I'm going to die in the morning. Unless we forget, Paul writes this letter, probably the most joyful letter of all of his letters, from a prison cell, possibly while being chained to a Roman guard, and depending on the outcome of a certain trial that is taking place, he may even be on death row. So a lot of these circumstances do not bring him happiness or comfort or pleasure, but they do bring him joy. So whatever joy is, it's able to transcend all of these negative experiences, and that's at least partially because joy takes the long view. Joy always takes the long view of things, and and sometimes we see this work out in our experience, right? It's happened this way in, in a lot of our lives. We saw a testimony of that from Charles this morning on the video. A scary or very dangerous health problem leads us to a greater trust in Christ. Maybe even we experience a miraculous healing, and in the end, that brings us great joy, in some ways even greater than if it had never happened. We have a harsh disagreement with a spouse or another family member or a good friend But that ultimately leads us to reconciliation and to a greater understanding and a greater intimacy with that person than we would have had if the problem had never occurred and we're in a much better place. Maybe we experience a a great financial setback. Maybe it's a job loss or something like that. But ultimately, through a series of events, we are led to an even greater opportunity, an even better situation. Maybe there's a wayward child who as an adult goes through a horrible season of rebellion, but in the end, that child repents and comes to know Jesus and is now more walk, walking more closely with the Lord than he ever did before the problem started. And so looking back, 
with these things in mind, we can look back, we can see how it makes sense. It makes sense to be joyful even in the tough times. Why? Because we know it's all part of God's plan and God has a better plan than we could ever imagine. But let's be honest. Sometimes we can't see things that way, right? Sometimes the cancer doesn't get healed. Sometimes the relationship doesn't get repaired. Sometimes the tragedy that takes place seems so final, so irreversible, that we can find absolutely no way to connect the dots to any kind of happiness or any kind of good plan that we can imagine. And here is where our faith really has to kick in. Because in these cases, we need not just a long-term perspective, but in these cases, we need an eternal perspective. We need to learn, and this is a hard thing to learn, to rejoice in a God who is infinitely wiser than we are, and in an eternity in which all of our sufferings are made to seem like nothing in comparison to what Paul calls the glory that will be revealed in us. Do we understand this? No. We can't understand it. But if we could understand everything from God's perspective, then guess what? We'd be God. And we're not. And so we rejoice that He is. Joy is not a cheap kind of happiness. It plums the depths of our pain. And it fights to be satisfied in God and in all He has promised us. Because joy, real Christian joy, more than just pleasure, more than just a feeling of well-being, Christian joy is a deep satisfaction in God that encompasses all of life including the really hard times. Now, let's step back, though, and try to approach joy, maybe from another angle, maybe a happier one. And this is going to be kind of the weird, interesting part of the sermon for some of you. But to do this, I want to, I want to call on uh, C.S. Lewis and get his help a little bit. C.S. Lewis, most of you know who that is in the sense you know he's the British author of the famous book Mere Christianity. He also wrote the well-known um, Chronicles of Narnia, the kids' stories. Um, but, but you may not know this about him, though, that C.S. Lewis spent the first part of his life in a very determined search for joy. In fact, his autobiography of those early years is a book that he wrote and entitled Surprised by Joy, because joy turned out to be a lot different than he had ever imagined it would. Now, Lewis, Lewis was a rather bookish fellow. Actually, he was a professor of medieval and Renaissance studies at Oxford, and so his inclination, when he knew he wanted to find joy, his inclination was to begin looking for joy in intellectual pursuits and literary pursuits, like exploring the great poets and the great philosophers and doing all that kind of reading. I actually have another mug in my cabinet, and and it has a quote from C.S. Lewis on it that says this, you can't get a cup of tea large enough or a book long enough to suit me. So that was his thing. So if you're in heaven one day, and you can't find Pastor Wes. Um, stop in at C.S. Lewis's flat, and you'll probably find them, you know, sharing a spot of tea. But even though Lewis often took exquisite pleasure in these, these literary and intellectual pursuits, he realized this, this pleasure wasn't all there was. It wasn't, it was fleeting, it was incomplete. And that true joy was eluding him, that true joy had to be deeper and more profound than a mere state of pleasure or pain-free contentment. In fact, he came to see joy, and this is interesting, not as a state of mind at all, but as a pursuit, as a more of a pursuit, an activity that joy wasn't a static thing, but joy was dynamic. It involved participating in something. Now, I think we can understand what he means better if we get away from the, the word joy for a second, and we think about the English word enjoy. 
and joy. So obviously that means it has that word and it means to take joy in something. So, so what do we enjoy doing? Let me ask you that. What, do you, what is the thing that you enjoy doing the most? Maybe some of the things you enjoy doing the most. If we were having a Sunday school class, I'd ask you to tell me that, but we're not, and you don't get to talk. But think about it. What do I enjoy the most? You know what? You may be surprised to discover that the things that you enjoy the most in this life do not always bring you uninterrupted pleasure and peace. For instance, some of you tell me, and I kind of believe it, that you enjoy working out. Okay? Or, or heaven forbid, you enjoy jogging. And it's not just that you enjoy the results. You, you know, being, being in shape is good. I know you enjoy that. But you enjoy the activity itself, even though it contains a lot more pain than pleasure, right? Somehow you enjoy it. Some of you enjoy music like I do. But you know what? If you enjoy music, you know that the most boring music in the world is the music that has no tension, no dissonance, no hint at all of unpleasantness. And that's because the real joy in music is found in tension and release, in disharmony resolving into harmony. Without that... Music is just uninteresting noise. Some people actually enjoy watching horror movies because for some reason they like being scared out of their minds. A couple weeks ago, Daniel, my son, and I went on something called the Fury 325 down at uh, Carowinds, which is the tallest, steepest, and fastest giga coaster in North America. This was terrifying. It even made me a little sick to my stomach, but it filled me with an undeniable joy. It did. So even in these, these little minor experiences, these temporary experiences we have, we get a hint that joy is more complicated than we think it is. It's not just some state of nirvana. It's, it has texture. It has, it has tension. It has adventure. It has excitement. It holds mysteries. There are new discoveries. And more than that, according to C.S. Lewis at least, joy involves a pursuit. We are after something. Joy is something that we can choose to run after. In other words, joy has an object. Joy has an object. We must take joy, not just for its own sake, but we take joy in something, which means joy itself is not the goal. And Lewis was kind of freaked out to discover that. The joy wasn't the goal, but the goal is the thing that brings us joy, that our, our joy has to be in something, which means joy is always a means to an end. It's not an end in itself. Joy is a pursuit. The next thing Lewis discovered was this, that we cannot contemplate joy and experience it at the same time. Now what he means by that is that the minute you step back and try to analyze your joy, you've lost it. Isn't that true? When you're out on the lake and you're reeling in that one in a million fish and you're experiencing the thrill of reeling it in and, and all the tension on the line and the fear of losing the fish and, and the difficulty of bringing it in and you're loving every minute of it, you never stop and say, wow, this is the most fun I've had in my entire life, right? Why? Because if you do that, you'll lose the joy, even just for that moment, because real joy is found in losing yourself in the experience of catching the fish, not in analyzing your emotions about it. And even afterwards, you may take some degree of joy in looking back at pictures and remembering the experience and talking about it with people, but it's still not quite the same. As much as you'd like to take an experience like that and kind of bottle it up so that you would have access to it and be able to repeat it anytime you want to, and we try to do that with our joy sometimes, it's impossible. You can't do it. And you can't really recreate it either, even if you go fishing again, because there was something so unique about that time. There was something that was so perfect. Well, it wasn't perfect, but wow, it was almost perfect. 
right? It was almost perfection. It was almost pure joy. But it was fleeting. And you can't grab hold of it. So to paraphrase C.S. Lewis and what he discovered, joy is always teasing us. It's always giving us just a little taste of itself and it's inviting us further in, but then it's disappearing around the next corner and we lose it. And all the while, that joy is pointing to something else that we know must exist. And that something else is infinite joy. That something else is the source of joy, perfect joy, supreme satisfaction. Lewis came to believe that such a thing had to exist. There must be a fount of perfect joy. It must exist. But being an atheist, he didn't know what to call it. So he decided to call it the absolute with a capital A. And he was running after the absolute. Well, that that didn't really work very well. He realized at one point that joy went beyond just the body and the mind to a more spiritual place, and so instead of referring to joy as the absolute with a capital A, he started referring to joy as spirit with a capital S. That was as far as he would go. But you know what? The longer that C.S. Lewis chased after true joy, he says he began to get the sense that someone was chasing him, following him down every dead-end road, daring him to turn around and see who was hunting him down. And so one day... After a very long internal struggle, Lewis finally gave in. He turned around, and he called this fountain of supreme joy by its name, God. And he knelt, and he prayed for the very first time. Now, he was not very happy about this. In fact, he says he came to this realization kicking and screaming, quote, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. But it was only a small step from there to putting his faith in Jesus Christ. And when he looks back on that experience, he says the thing that amazes him the most is that God would actually accept somebody on those terms. He said at least the prodigal son returned on his own two feet. But he said he had to be dragged kicking and screaming to the foot of the cross. But once he was there, he began the real journey of learning how to rejoice in the Lord. He hadn't found joy. Joy had found him. Hunted him down and captured him. And the only reason that joy can do this is that ultimately joy is a person. As we draw to a close this morning, I want to go back and look at the the phrase in the verse we haven't looked at a whole lot yet, which is in the Lord. In the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. I can see at least three dimensions of meaning in this little phrase. Let's just look at them one at a time. First of all, there's this. This phrase, in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord, is a reminder that all of the other good things in this world in which we can and should rejoice, all of those things ultimately point us in the same place. They point us to the Lord. In about four verses, Paul's going to encourage the Philippian church to let their minds dwell on certain types of things. It's in verse 8. He says, let your minds dwell on things that are true, things that are honorable, things that are noble, things that are just, things that are excellent, things that are praiseworthy. Think about those things. Why? Well, that's part of rejoicing in the Lord because all those positive things point us back to their inventor. Do you rejoice in the beauty of a sunset? Well, as you do that, Rejoice in the one who, in the words of one of our songs, imagined the sun and gives source to its light. Do you rejoice in the sight of your newborn child or grandchild? That's an easy thing to rejoice in, right? Rejoice in the one who lovingly and carefully knit him together in his mother's womb. 
Do you rejoice in spending a fun day at the beach, at the lake, at the ball field? Rejoice in the God who gives you the energy to run, who gives you the beauty of nature, and gives you the senses to be able to appreciate it. It's all from Him. This is one of the great advantages of being a Christian, by the way, and why it really stinks to be a non-Christian. Because every great joy in life, if you're a Christian, it's no longer just a random accident of nature. It's now a personal gift to you from your Heavenly Father. Rejoice in Him and not merely in the gifts that He gives because these lesser joys are great, but they're fleeting. As wonderful as they are, they're just a hint of a greater joy and a greater person. So when you go through good times, times of obvious enjoyment, remember, they're always pointing you to the person who invented them and who gives these great gifts to you. That's the first thing that in the Lord means. Now second, the second application is really kind of a flip side of the first one because it's when you go through hard times. We talked about this. When you go through, when it's a time when it's very hard to rejoice in anything. You can't make sense of what's going on in your life. Remember this though, there's one thing that hasn't changed and that's the character of your God. He is still the same. He is still wise. He is still loving. He is still compassionate, and he still cares for you. So even if some tragic event has come into your life, and these happen from time to time, you can't for the life of you figure out how this could fit into any sort of greater plan. Well, what you're left with is the character of God himself. That's it. His love, his power, his faithfulness, and his promise to never leave you or forsake you and to turn all of your suffering into unimaginable glory one day. Rejoice in him that when everything else comes crashing down, he is still the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. And then finally, consider this. What if joy really was not just a happy state of mind? What if it really was a pursuit? And what if it was the pursuit of a person? What if that person knew absolutely everything about you? Your greatest hopes and desires, your greatest loves, your greatest fears, your greatest weaknesses, your most shameful failures, your most depraved thoughts, and your most detestable sins. What if that person still loved you in spite of all that stuff? In fact, what if that person loved you so much that he would give his own life for you that you would not be lost? What if he went through unimaginable pain and sustained an infinite wound, all because of your sin and betrayal and selfishness, but then he didn't hold it against you? Instead, what if this person invited you to chase after him on an eternal adventure where you get to see more and more of his glory, experience more and more of his love, and where he has a plan to pour out all the riches of his grace upon you as you explore all the dimensions of his love, his power, his genius, his beauty, and his creativity? What if, what if that adventure didn't have to wait until after you died, but what if it could start today? Amen. What does that adventure look like? I think Jesus gave us a really big hint in the passage we looked at last week with the woman at the well. After he had had this discussion with this, this lady and he had, he had brought her to faith in him and she had gone into town to tell some of the townspeople about him, the disciples came back from their mission. They had gone into town to buy food. And they saw Je- they had left him exhausted, just kind of sitting there, completely spent at, at, at high noon, sitting by this well. And they came back and they found Jesus and they said, hey, is it time to eat? Are you ready for the food? And Jesus said, I have food to eat that you don't know anything about. 
And they were like, what happened? What was Jesus talking about? I think he was talking about what Isaiah was talking about in Isaiah 55 too. Why do you spend your money on that which is not bread and your labor on that which does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me, God says, and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest of fare. What was Jesus saying to his disciples? He was saying, you know what, guys? I forgot all about physical food because my soul is so full. It's full of joy right now. I've been eating soul food. Why was his soul so full? Well, because Jesus had just done his favorite and most satisfying thing. He had just brought a new worshiper to his father. And she was actually headed into town now to get a bunch of other people to come back so they could become worshipers of the father. And that's what Jesus took the most joy in. What if the joyful adventure on which we are called involves discounting or maybe even laying aside some of the other more temporary blessings in order to seek eternal ones? What if it leads us to give up our own needs and wants for the sake of other people? What if it involves going way out of our way to bring other people to Jesus? What if sacrificing our own desires and comforts for the sake of loving others, introducing them to Christ, and building them up in the faith? What if that turned out to be the real soul food? What if all your wildest dreams on this earth are nothing compared to the journey on which Jesus is inviting you? What if there were an infinite number of discoveries, an infinite number of challenges, an infinite number of adventures waiting for you? What if this Jesus who knows you inside and out was someone who also knows how to completely fill up the joy tank in your heart? But then after he fills it up, he knows how to expand your heart again and again to receive more and more joy. And what if Jesus himself turned out to be the most enjoyable thing of all? What would compare to that? I'm going to leave you with one last quote from a sermon by C.S. Lewis, and it's quoted in the book by Piper. He says this, If we consider the unblushing promises of reward, the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. What about you and me? Are you far too easily pleased? What ultimately are you pursuing? What ultimately are you chasing after? Where is your joy? Let's pray as the worship team comes and we'll one more worship song.